Hey, welcome to episode two of Down, uh, sorry, Down the Rabbit Hole by Heavy Metal Baseball, uh, where we make the attempt to take high-level baseball concepts, discuss them, break them down, and have a conversation around those things. My name is Jared Fuller. This is my good friend and co-founder of Heavy Metal Baseball, Robert Riggins. Mr. Riggins. Hello. Uh, as there was a Twitter poll put out there, what should we do next? And the overwhelming winner, winner was neuroscience and hitting. The one we were hoping they wouldn't pick. Yeah. <laughs> uh, mercifully, the one that I get to be a lot quieter on because I, I don't know as much. So this is going to be a learning experience for me as much as anybody else who might be listening. So jumping right into it, neuroscience and hitting. Robert, how do you teach vision, vision and hitting? Uh, I think we should go back to like how how did this like thought or track ever even like begin? So when I was at uh, Powake in, in New Mexico, it's it's north of Santa Fe. Um, go look it up, Powake, P-O-J-O-A-Q-U-E. Um, we just weren't hitting very well, and so I got this weird idea of what if I just put an eye patch on the kids and we started working on hitting one eye at a time. What, I mean, just, <laughs> what, what, what started the idea of an eye patch? Why not? I, I would say sheer desperation. Okay. okay. <laughs> and so we tried it. We were going into spring break, and I mean, I don't think we could have hit water if we fell out of a boat. And uh, we, we tried it for a week, and the first game back from spring training, we, we hit five bombs in one game, and we won 19-1. to And, I mean, this is in New Mexico where it's just wood bats, and, like, hitting five bombs in a game is, is kind of a big deal. Yeah. And it was like, holy cow, this works. Uh, and, and I had posted it on, on Twitter a long time ago, and I have a picture of it. I mean, it was a difference of like 100 points in batting average. Our cut, our strikeouts were cut by two thirds. Our extra base hits went up. Uh, like almost every offensive category went up. It was ridiculous. And so then it was like, you know, I had a, a half season split of not doing the monocular training versus a half season split of doing the monocular training. So then it was like, well, why does this work? Like this, this is yeah. probably the stupidest thing I've ever done. The and you're in a week. I mean, that's how rapidly that you, I mean, is this some of, is that, how much that circumstantial, how much do you think it was just solely based upon a week's worth of training just doing one-eye splits? I, I Man, I, that is a good question. I don't know. It just was such a huge difference. Like, we were, we just were taking better at bats. We were seeing the ball better. The kids said the ball looked bigger. Like, almost everyone that I've done this with, that's usually the first thing I hear is the ball looks bigger. Oh. Huh. My uh, my brother-in-law, I got him to try it one summer, and he was playing in a summer league, and that was the first thing he said is that it looks like a beach ball. Interesting. So, okay, this is how this whole thing started. That's how the whole thing started. And then I just started looking into it and found that most of my understanding about how your entire visual system works when you're trying to hit a baseball is is uh, not what I thought this, this wasn't something that was taught to me. It was just, this is how I thought my vision worked. And that's not at all how it works. Okay, so, how, I mean, what was starting from that premise, like, what, what do you think? Because I don't know if, in all the time that I was coaching, or even still now, up until the point of meeting you, that I even considered this, right? Like, how vision's working, how it's, 
how the ball's being tracked and stuff like that, right? I just, I don't think I ever gave it much thought. So, so pardon me for you not know, being able to, <laughs> I didn't slap eye patches on kids for being genuinely uncurious. Um, how is it that we think that we're seeing things happen versus how is it that we're actually seeing things? I think the, the biggest misconception or thing that I found the most amazing is, and, and we're talking about just in terms of hitting a baseball right now, I guess to keep it real simple, you always hear that term, keep your eye on the ball. Well, you don't see it in real time. Like what you see in your vision is actually your visual perception and 80% of your visual perception is memory based and 20% is real time. So you're, you're feeding forward like what you think is going to happen based on previous experiences and then you're also receiving feedback at the same time. So hitting is a exercise more in memory than it is vision. Yes. You're, 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 you're basing your prediction of pitch flight path based on previous experiences. You're, you're making a guess. You have to make a prediction of what you think is going to happen. But if you're not calibrated to what you're seeing, your predictions are going to be wrong. Does this, does this go up with each level? So from coach pitch, even though that's at a slower speed, that player is, is effectively guessing? That, that's a that's a very good question. So m from what my understanding is, is below about 75 miles an hour, you can you can just literally hit what you see because it's moving so slow. You have time to make more adjustments. Um, but as you get older and 75 and up, that's when you have to start being a good predictor of flight path. You don't have time uh, to just react to what you see like that. You can't just load and then the sit fastball and react curveball. Okay. So that would, that would make sense because you did it, as, it probably the same way I did. A lot of times in a real small school setting, you got to uh, bring freshmen into service quicker than larger schools do. And, I mean, they looked completely lost because obviously for the most part, baseballs are traveling north of 75 miles an hour uh, on a high school field from the pitcher's mound, which may not be the case where they just came from. Uh, you know, 13U and 14U baseball. So uh, it's not, it's not the, you're saying the 8U kid, the 9U kid, the 10U kid, there is, I guess, is the, the way we transfer things, is it set at an early age? Yeah, with, with those kids, like, you, what you need to do with them, like I have a six-year-old son, and so I want to make his internal model of how he learns to follow the baseball better. And how you do that is working on his timing and spacing and angles. So, like, we'll go hit in uh, my in-law's backyard, and we'll throw from different angles, from 45 degrees either side. Um, I'll scoot real close to him. I'll scoot further away from him. We'll use different. We'll use a tennis ball. We'll use a wiffle ball. We'll use a blitz ball. So he starts to have better internal models and learn how to calculate spin. Uh, differently per, per types of ball, per spin, he has, learns to account for spacing. So he just has in, more internal models. You, so you, every human being has an internal model of how a projectile will fall to Earth based on its gravitational pull. And we have a basic understanding of how spin offsets that, but if you don't understand how pitch physics work, you're going to have a hard time calculating that extra backspin or you'll have that illusion of the fastball rising. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not rising, it's just falling at a less steeper angle. So it seems like it's rising. 
Uh, and, and in case you're curious, um, I'm not going into super detail about um, my citations on this. I have the link to my neuroscience paper on my blog. So when I when we post this, we'll put the link to it so you can click on it and read the paper. If you want to go much more granular into it, uh, that'll be available. Okay. So getting okay more so we're talking about so how how does our vision work when we're hitting <laughs> uh so again it's it's you have to tap into your visual working memory so like when you see a fastball you already have like an internal model or a prediction of predicted flight path and if it's wrong like you can still make like think 3-0 guy gets a 3-0 fastball and he can still swing and miss it well it's because his timing might have been off or his predicted flight path for that ball might have been off mm -hmm. because he might have predicted the ball moving with a specific spin axis. Well, maybe the pitcher cut the ball on that pitch, and so his prediction is going to be off. So your, your visual perception is, is influenced by your visual working memory. So if, you're, if your visual working memory is off, it can contaminate your, your visual perception. And so the reason why this stuff is important is you receive this perceptual information and when you're putting together um, coordinated structures, or basically like how your, your whole body's gonna move together to complete this movement solution, it's basing that on your visual input, your, your visual motor response. Like this is the equation, this is the solution I'm gonna output. The more accurate your visual input is, the more accurate your movement's gonna be. So if you're miscalculating ball flight, you're gonna miscalculate your swing. And this would be something that just comes by repetition, just just repetition over and over and over again on specific. I would say the the right repetition, like one of the worst things, and and this this is my opinion based on writing all this, but probably one of the worst things that we do is we get a pitching machine, we put it in the middle of the pitching mound and shoot it out. Well, the average pitching machine height, and this is based on when I called Hack Attack and spoke with them. The average pitching machine height or industry standard height is four and a half feet. Now, part of the reason is is because it's easy to load that. Mm -hmm. uh, so, there's part of the problem right there is the average release height in Major League Baseball for a right-handed pitcher is six feet. And then you're we're putting the pitching machine in the middle of the pitching mound, which doesn't represent anybody's angle, arm angle at all. So we're calibrating them to a angle and a height that they're most likely never going to see. So you have to get calibrated uh, and your brain calibrates to all the kind of standard metrics of something. So if I said, think of a dog, your brain calibrates to all the average features of every dog you've ever seen. Okay. So if I say, if so, if you're trying to picture a fastball and I'm just using a major league fastball, your brain is already calibrated to the league-wide average fastball. So the guys that are the closest to the league-wide average are the guys that are going to get hit the hardest. Uh, and so something that I had thrown out there and I'm still trying to figure out how to put it all together is for guys that get shelled the most, how close are all their metrics like spin rates and velocity and horizontal break and vertical break? How close are all of these things to the league average and how many standard deviations are they away from all of this? So the, basically, the further you are away from average in all these categories, the better that pitch should be. And you and I have talked, there's some guys that, you know, oddly enough, uh, that, that throw that are really deviant from the average. Guys like Verlander and, and Scherzer, correct? Yeah, like... I, um, and the one that I had, I had posted on Twitter a while back was, was Trevor Bauer. But, yeah, so 
um, release angles, if you take, and this is just their, their um, horizontal and vertical release angles. So Justin Verlander, the league-wide average for release height on right-handed pitchers is six feet, um, and he has a seven-foot average release height. And then um, Max Scherzer has a five-foot-three average release height. So their release points right there are already way outside. Wildly divergent. Yeah, uh, uh, the, the, the league-wide average on that. So then you, you could calculate in zone entry angles. And I, I tried running this um, through Excel, and I, I've crashed Excel like dozens of times. Mm -hmm. And so I have some guys that are slowly trying to convince me to switch over to R so I don't keep crashing Excel because uh, it's not designed to run that many uh, sets of data. But that that's, in a nutshell, yeah, That just from that start right there where their release points are. You're most likely going to be calibrated to that six feet. Uh, something that that I heard that West Texas A&M does really well is uh, the coaches over there they set the pitching machine angle to um, whoever they're most likely going to face the next day, mm -hmm. and so that's something they do really well. Something I heard a major league teams uh, are are starting to do is they have somebody go in with a rapsodo and um, kind of calibrate like out of the pitching machine like the spin rates and the spin axis of, of the of the guy they're gonna face that day and I think that only matches up part of the problem like you're getting the some of the basic features but you're not getting the release angle I mean part of the problem is it's kind of hard to load a pitching machine that has a seven foot release height yes yeah <laughs> I can imagine but I think that would be the next step is how do you create more accurate like batting practice that, that's been the one drawback to all this is how do you create more accurate batting practice? Like I've been surprised that, do you remember when they had those um, pitching machines that would put the projection of the pitcher? Yeah, I've used them. In fact, uh, our team had access one for uh, several years, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I don't understand why those aren't more popular. Or I, I mean, I haven't seen one in years. Yeah, they. I mean, I think I had, I had heard for a while that several major league clubs were using them. Uh, but I'd also seen, for the most part, what they would do was just use it in their fan zone, so you could get the feel of of seeing a major league fastball from oh, a major league pitcher. I wonder if they had problems syncing up the accuracy of it. Maybe that might have been it. I, I, you know, I can't ever, I can't vouch or verify. You know, we would use it when we had an on opportunity. So we had a really good scouting report. That you know, we just only thing we knew was how fast the kid threw, right? Um, but the problem with them is, is there's only one exit point from that entire thing, so you would only see the same thing. In that model that you're you're bringing up, uh, you would be trained to one specific release point, much like a pitching machine, uh, because it's just it's a machine behind that screen that's just feeding that ball. So, uh, uh, you know, it's not a, it's not an adjustable thing. It's not highly it's not very adjustable. So, that might be the issue. But yeah, I've seen them there. Nice. I think the other but the barrier to entry for those is they're well over six figures to uh, uh, buy, uh, own, and, and install. That could be part <laughs> of it. Uh, we're continuing on. Like one of the other problems. So let's look at a, a 90 mile uh, fastball. And this is uh, from Rob Adair um, and his lang the language of sport. Uh, um, it's called the science of the swing. It takes about a hundred milliseconds for the eye of the batter to like see the ball and then send an image to the brain and, and you know that's that's about according to the this figure that he has here it's about 14 feet i mean so, that's 
So you're saying 14 feet have, have transpired before you've able to read and, and understand what's happening out of the pitcher's hand. Yeah. So the idea of the old well, you see thing, it, but before your brain actually recognizes and sends the image to the brain. Like your eyes have seen it, but for that image to go to your brain. So the old adage, see it out of his hand, is a misnomer. Yeah. Okay. So it's traveled 14 feet before you have visual recognition of it. Yeah. Okay. The, way, the way I'm understanding this, yeah. And then we, we, we both read that paper or that article. My, I found mine on Berkeley. Yeah. edu and you found yours on live, live science, science right yeah yeah it says um uh, there's a hundred millisecond hold up it means that in real time a tennis ball moving at 120 miles an hour would have already advanced 15 feet before the brain registers the ball's location so you you need to be able to pick the ball up earlier and so one of the things that, that i found with doing this monocular training or essentially just putting eye patches on kids was there was a study done that showed that it improved um, the kinetic visual acuity, basically your ability to pick up a moving object. So that was part of the reason why I thought it worked was it, it synced up the eyes better so they could actually pick up the ball sooner. Okay, so explain synced up the eyes because, you know, that's, you know, I, unless you are, are really in, I mean, understanding how vision works, I think most of us are assumed that our eyes are already synced up. I mean, I still don't understand how a vision works. <laughs> so, so binocular fusion, like you, you have your two eyes. If you're if you're sitting at home listening, if you're driving, don't do this. You know, pull over the side of the road, and then you can do this. But look directly ahead of you and put your finger right in front of your face, and you're going to see two fingers. It's because when you look at something, you're looking from two separate angles, and so your brain has to put those two angles together to form one picture. And if those eyes aren't in sync at what they're looking at, you're going to get uh, incorrect depth perception. You're going to get blurred motion. Um, that's why binocular vision is important for it to be synced up. That's your, your uh, binocular fusion. Mm -hmm. that's, that's how well your eyes are fused together at a fixed point. Uh, I didn't realize that it was really a problem. There's an app called, and it's very expensive, but there's an app called uh, RideEye or a company called RideEye that they have this eye testing software that you can do and it basically looks at your eye performance. And when I ran through it, I mean, I, I ranked pretty high on almost every single category in that machine. And so I, I don't know if it was from the eye patches or what, but I mean, I was, I'm not gonna brag, but my eyes are pretty elite. elite. <laughs> so you're using binocular training to bring up and more balance to the eyes. So that the dominant eye or the dominant side is, or the less dominant eye is more performing similar to the dominant eye. Yeah, so, so uh, one of the studies that we found, and again, it, like all this is in my paper, um, there's like a 14 to 21 millisecond like delay between your dominant and non-dominant eye. So if you're receiving more information from your non-dominant during a specific at bat, you've just inherited an extra delay. One of the studies I, I read was to, they, they, they basically covered the eye of a gymnast while they had him vault onto a horse, mm -hmm. which is already difficult. Now you're doing it with one eye. But what they found was for novices, the ones that were still learning the skills, it instantly optimized their gaze or basically where they were looking, it, it like instantly optimized it to the level that experts were doing it. And so that's where I had first read it and realized that maybe, maybe this does work. They actually even did it for... 
there's one baseball study I found, and that one I actually do want to. Let me pull it up right here. So they, in the study, they they had these guys bunt a baseball, which I know I probably turned some of you off right there. Uh, so the gymnast study was Heinen and Vinken in 2011. Monocular inclusion training optimizes gaze performance of novices and complex skills. And then the baseball one was Honda, Hoffel, and Bonafed in 1996. Monocular occlusion training improves kinetic visual acuity and binocular fusion. In the, in the Honda and Hoffel and Bonafed, they had these guys bunt a baseball and they covering their eye one eye at a time and they found that it improved those things. If they focused on using the non-dominant eye. Just one eye at a time. It didn't matter which it eye. It didn't matter. It, it, okay. it helped improve. Because what happens, like, if I was to get stabbed in the eye, okay, they're going to cover up both eyes. Because my eye that is not injured is going to be looking around, and my other eye, since it's synced up with it, is going to start moving as well. Okay. So when you cover this one up, it now has to rely on all the visual input of your non-covered eye. And so it learns to sync up the movements better. And so by doing that, again, you're increasing the accuracy of your depth perception, and you're also reducing motion blur, which are definitely two things you don't want to be so there, happening you, when you're hitting. You may not know the answer to this question. You may know the answer to this question. So do we have the how much time it shaves off reaction time if our eyes are uh, more synced? Uh, man, I have no idea how to answer that question. I know there, from what I've read, there's a cap or a limit to visual motor response. I don't. Supposedly, there's like everyone has the same limit, but I, I don't know. I mean, my thought was by improving the non-dominant eye, you would get rid of the delay in the non-dominant eye and improve just overall eye performance. And then, because because hitting is different. Like with pitching, you control the action. But with hitting, you're responding to a visual input. And so if your vision sucks, you're not going to couple that with a very accurate movement. And I've never understood why they don't spend more time working on how well your eyes perform or how well you interpret your visual information. I, I You know, I, just as a thought, because, again, I, I think baseball is... is uh kind of uh, lagging on, on some of these areas. I think for the longest time, baseball has been either you have it or you don't, right? It's not uh, a concept of, can we make it better? It's, you can see, I mean, you can see the ball or you can't, or you can, you can hit the ball very well or you can't. I think sometimes we fall into traps and you know, I know I've done it as well, which is, you know, that kid's just better. And why is he better? Well, lack of curiosity. I don't know why he's better. He just is. So I mean, that that's kind of a on, on my end. You know, again, never having even considered some of the, any of the stuff right now you're talking about, right? Uh, you know, I, I never went into a spring break and went, "Okay, we should put some eye patches on people." <laughs> uh, that's uh, <laughs> sad. Maybe I, I mean, mean that's not that's realized, not a normal thing. Now that I see, now that I see that it worked, I probably should have. But I can tell you, that's the furthest thing from my mind is seeing if we could have pirate practice in the middle of spring break. Uh, but evidently, it works. So, and I mean, with the monocular training, 
you carried this on and you've carried this on for how long now and uh i mean it's only been about a year okay so we yeah we did it and then obviously i got the job with the brewers um so i haven't got to like i've done it in some private lessons um i did it with with a a, a few young men over the course of the summer and they felt like they had really good summers um and they, you know they started to swear by it so i mean it, I, it just your visual perception is is huge like for example wit and profit in 2004 showed that your visual perception of the size of the baseball can change based on your on-field success so basically what they did is they would have these girls come to the field and every day they'd have like different sizes of softballs laid out and they would ask them to pick which one's the game size ball and the girls that were the best hitters on the team always picked the bigger ball huh. and the girls that were the worst hitters on the team always picked the smaller ball because their perception was the ball was smaller and, and you would hear it all the time like guys would be hitting off pitchers and they'd say oh the guy's throwing an aspirin at the dish or he's throwing a bb right or it looks like a beach ball when things are going great. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard that over. Yeah, you've heard That's that over visual over perception. Your perception of that specific event is changed your visual working. It's contaminated your visual working memory. So when you go up to future at bats, that's the visual perception that you're going to carry over. So that would suggest that maybe like hot streaks aren't just hot streaks alone. They're a combination of confidence, but built upon a instead of things that you're seeing that just reinforce. Yeah, like we said, perception is reality. Yeah, I don't like that. So <laughs> well, like out. MIT did a study that they had a, they would have a ball go behind a barrier and they would make the participants predict when was the ball gonna reappear. So essentially that's what you're doing is the like when you're hitting the ball disappears and then it reappears. Like the ball, when it gets about eight feet out in front of you, it's going so fast, your eyes can't move fast enough to track it, it disappears. And so what they found when the MIT study is when they provided them time, like how much time was passing as the ball was moving, they were more accurate. So I, I had this thought of, well, what if we also, instead of miles per hour, we also provided time to the hitters? Like that pitch right there is a, is a .4. And then that's a .47 and they started to understand that time like your brain processes more information so than you're you realizing i having that knowledge of the 0.47 may not mean anything to the hitter in the moment but the way his brain processes it may it may be more it may be more to the to to him than just i mean I, i'm losing my kind of my words here like <laughs> but I said, it, we give you like a, a, a more up-to-date more accurate internal model of what the ball's doing because um the ball, the ball's traveling too fast for your eyes to to actually pick up. And this applies to spin rate too, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, since we're on spin rate, I just had it right here. So, like okay. the, the whole rising fastball theory. Uh, Kagan in 2017 found that in order for a fastball to actually rise, it would have to be thrown at 113 miles an hour and have 3,100 RPMs to create enough lift for it to actually rise. And if I remember correctly, the the guy that was the closest was Araldis Chapman. Um, and he was a, he was closest to it. Like he was, it had to be like a factor of one to offset gravity, and he was at like 0.85. So at minimum, his was probably sinking the least amount that it ever, or maybe staying on plane, or like on just a right. Cause well, every, his was the closest to offsetting the effects of gravity. Okay, that's not a bad, like 
I mean, I'd like that on my tombstone. Yeah, like that. the ball so hard to offset the consequences <laughs> of gravity. <laughs> Almost. Almost. But that it does apply to spin as well, right? Mm-hmm. So, what does that mean with spin rate in pitchers? Uh, you know, obviously, is, is something that's being far more tracked is how fast they spin the ball. When do we lose the ball as hitters? As far as like, at what point is it spinning so fast that it doesn't matter? I can't track it beyond that anyway. Oh, man, there's – don't quote me on this. I, I want to say it's like – there's like a gap. You you can't tell a difference in a spin rate. I think it's like between three and 800 RPMs. Like you can't tell the difference. So if I threw a ball at like 2,200 and I threw a ball at 2,700 RPM, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference I in can't. spin rate. Yeah. So it, but, but if, it, if it jumps higher than that, then I have a visual – yeah, so if you maybe you throw like a sixteen hundred mile an hour changeup and you're throwing a twenty hundred mile an hour curveball, like you'll be able to tell the difference in those spin rates. Okay. Because it's a big enough of a gap. Okay, and but as far as off the top of our head, you don't know if there's a spin rate that is just uh, a combination of mile per hour plus spin rate that we just can't track. Um, you know, uh, what was that the, that documentary on Netflix, Fastball? Basically, uh, again, this is me shooting from memory. That beyond 97 miles an hour, we're not seeing anything anyway. Yeah. Um, well, what happens is, so an incoming pitch is coming in, is going to reach an angular velocity of greater than 500 degrees per second, or it, some studies that I've found set up to 900 degrees per second. Well, your eye, your your smooth pursuit. So, like, if a car's driving across the road and you follow it with your eyes, that's your smooth pursuit tracking. So that can only move like your angular velocity. Your eyes can only go up to 120 degrees per second. Right. Okay. So the ball's coming in at 900 degrees per second based on relative your location, but your eyes can only go 120. That's that's like a 780 mile an hour difference. Yes. So about seven eight feet in front of the plate, you the ball's just invisible because you can't keep up with it, and so you're gonna have to guess. Um, there was another study that they they would shut off the vision of the hitter, like they did like the first 20 feet. And obviously, they didn't have a good job of hitting. Then they did the middle 20 feet, and they turned it back on. Vision was a little bit better. And then they did the last 20 feet, and then, like, the last 20 feet pretty much made no difference. Like, they were still hitting it at the same rate if they would have just watched the ball the whole way. Okay, so go through that again. So the, so the last 20 feet. Last 20 feet of ball flight. Because your visual motor response, it takes you 150 seconds to couple, like, a visual stimulus into an actual motor movement. Uh-huh. So the last 150 milliseconds of ball flight, you can't do anything with that information. But because by the time it, you've tra- it's translated, it's, it's too gone. Yeah, it's, that's it's that's why passion. that's why pitch tunneling is like become the thing. Is the closer you can get the ball to the plate before it actually starts moving, the better you're going to be at basically creating swing and misses because that last 150 feet. Or sorry, last 150 milliseconds of ball flight. Which occurs at what distance from the plate? um, According to, and I'm looking at at Rob Adair's thing again. According to Rob Adair, the last 150 milliseconds is, it looks at about like, see, the swing itself takes 150 milliseconds. During the first 50 milliseconds, the batter can stop. But after 100 milliseconds, the bat is moving too fast. The swing cannot be checked. So I mean, one it looks like about thirty-eight feet, about yeah, thirty-eight, thirty-eight-ish feet. 
So if it looks though, I always thought that number was around 20. Is that, I mean, that, that means that makes an easier time even for the pitchers though. So they well, you got to remember he's not throwing it from 60 feet, six, like he's releasing it. Okay. So this is from 60 feet, six inches, not from the release point of the pitcher. Yeah, well, this is from his release point. Like if he released it out in front, because I mean, sixty feet six inches is from the actual rubber itself, and nobody throws from that. Right. Robert hitting a baseball sounds really, really hard. <laughs> it, it it is slightly difficult. <laughs> so, with all this information, and this has been quite a bit of information. Um, is there anything out there outside of just uh, batting practice and high velo batting practice and batting practice from different angles that can help a hitter uh, improve his memory or improve his vision? Uh, I think probably memory is probably the better way to put it uh, that's out there right now. So. Just slap an eye patch on. <laughs> Outside of just slapping eye patches. <laughs> yeah, I, I, there are there are the VR platforms, uh, the virtual reality stuff. I, I'm I don't know. I'm, I'm slightly. I think they're good in terms, and this is just this is my opinion. I think they're good in terms of visual working memory and helping you predict pitch flight or update your internal models a little bit. But you got to remember the screen sitting like an inch or two in front of your face and you're trying to trick your eyes and your brain that the guy's actually standing 60 feet away from you. There's no, there's no, cicada, there's no cicadic eye movement. There's no smooth pursuit tracking. There, there's none of that. So I don't think it represents in terms of actual physiological performance, like you're not actually physically tracking it. Um, I know Nintendo had this problem with their Virtual Boy. Um, you're not having your eyes come together at a fixed point. They're looking at like two individual images directly in front of the eyes. And so it's, again, it's not matching what's actually happening on the field. So, so, so in, in short, these VR platforms are still probably limited as to, they may, they could probably, I mean, I would assume they provide some benefit, but that is tough to gauge considering that it's not. Yeah, I think I mean, they're relatively unknown still. I think they're really close. I just don't know how close or how far away they are. That, that's my concern is, is it matching in-game eye movements, which I don't think it is, and you know how, how accurate is it? Like how well does that scale onto the field? Because mm -hmm. you, again, you're, trying, you're, you're essentially tricking your brain. And I know from the Nintendo problems that I read with the Virtual Boy is people would get dizzy, um, it would start to cause eye performance issues, which are, which are definitely... I mean, granted, these were people wearing them for multiple hours at a time. I don't think people were putting a VR headset on and, and tracking pitches for hours at a time. Yeah. Uh, one, one that was suggested to me is, you, you know, you do it for a little bit, and then you blend it into some live at-bats or blend it into some bullpen work. I've never heard a VR platform recommend you do this for multiple hours at a time. So I, I think there is some validity to it. My question is like, is it more for eye performance or updating your internal models of pitch physics? So just being able to recognize pitches, but how then? Because it's not real time. I, I mean, I've got one on my phone. I don't know the name of it, um, 
but still even now i mean as much as i've done it i still find myself just guessing Oh, I know some of them. Are, yeah, they're like guess now. I'm like the guy didn't even release the ball. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, I, I I think in terms of pitch trajectory or reading like the kinematic cues from the pitcher, right? Like he, you you know his hands a little sideways on the curveball. You can yeah, see so you, more palm on the changeup. You're better off if you're losing that ball in 15 feet at 100 miles an hour, 14 feet, 100 miles an hour. Now, granted, not everybody throws 100 miles an hour. You are better off picking up the cues from the pitcher before the ball leaves his hand, right? I mean, you've got, you're better off learning that type of stuff if they're tipping that pitch, I guess, more so than you are or trying to, to study that thing out of his hand. Yeah, that's, and that's, that's been shown in the studies that we use kinematic cues to decipher like upcoming movements. Um, so that's, that's a possibility. As far as uh, other platforms, I know some things that we've discussed was could you have hitters train in different types of light? Yeah. You know, I was at the 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 science spectrum or, or what's the science museum? The Don Harrington, yeah. Yeah, so we exactly, were at the yeah. kids' museum, the kids' science spectrum or whatever it is. So we were over there and they had this display where they have these like five different colored dots running across the wall. And the blue dot is always behind the other colors. And so when I went back and looked, it says your brain processes blue slower than the other colors. So it made me think. And this posited what you did out there with blue seams, red seams, yeah. and different color seams on a baseball. What, what if you put different color seams, or what if we had different shades? Like you hit under normal conditions, and then we had like stage lights, and we flashed a blue spotlight in the cage, and now you have to hit under blue conditions, and then you hit under red conditions, and then yellow conditions. Or even you change the light temperature, you're going to hit under a warm light. Now you're going to hit under like amber light. But if we always track blue so, slower, are you saying that if we hit under blue and we bring up the idea of being able to process that then everything else improves just because you've improved that once that motor set that's i mean that's my educated guess you're constraining your ability to interpret a visual object like i mean if you my thought is if you could hit a high velocity pitch under a blue light which you are we already know now you're going to process slower Think about how much that would improve, and you we could. We just dyed the baseballs like Easter eggs. Then I feel like that would get really messy. <laughs> that would just be easier to have a blue light. I don't know if it'd be easier. You're, you're like you're taking a facility and you're changing the entire lighting structure around it, or you just keep the light the same. Or, or we get blue paint all over the pitching machine wheels. And... Well, we gotta let it dry. <laughs> I mean, we're just tinting it at first. I thought this was. I thought we were thinking out loud. No, oh, no, no, we're not thinking out loud. Uh, okay. I, I mean, I, I did again. That falls in the category again of things the, I didn't know. Yeah. The cheapest one, the, the cheapest one is to use an eye patch, pair that with weighted bats, pair that with the pitching machine, put the pitching machine at angles. Put the that, that's how I did with my high school team because we couldn't afford all those things, but we had eye patch. There's six dollars at Walgreens. Yeah. Go buy an eye patch. Uh, if you don't listen to anything else on the podcast, listen to that. Go to Walgreens and buy an eye patch. It's six dollars. And just take BP. And just yeah, just take BP. We started off the T, and what we started to realize is a lot of guys' swings were different from eye to eye, especially in attack angle, rotational acceleration. A lot of cases, bat speed. Things were just different, and our best hitters could replicate with both eyes, and our worst hitters usually had a huge delay in one eye. And so then we scaled that. Once the guys got better, we scaled that into off the machine with the weighted bats 
and then we would we never scaled it into live batting practice because I was a little too nervous yeah. <laughs> about that. You already have a restriction on your vision. If a guy throws one at your head, I don't I don't want to have to tell mom and dad you couldn't get out of the way because I had an eye patch on you. <laughs> at least with the machine, it's pretty controlled. But we started doing that as pregame. We were doing high velocity rounds for pregame with weighted bats and an eye patch on. I mean, we're swinging the 37 ounce log from, yeah. from Axbat pregame. And dudes are just hitting nukes. That's interesting. So is there any crossover here with this in pitching? So how does it apply to pitching? Well, obviously the pitch tunneling thing, you want to be as close to that 150 millisecond visual motor delay as possible. So basically get your balls close to the dish before it breaks and group all your pitches together. Like not only having like tunneling, but tunnel depth. How how far do your pitches all stay together before they break apart? Um, the standard deviations of can you make sure that your pitch metrics are as far away as possible from your league-wide average. Now, in high school, that might be kind of hard to do. You can get a rough idea. Uh, colleges, you know, some of them have TrackMan and things like that. Now you can at least go on Rapsodo and see what a lot of the metric averages are and just try to get as far away from those as possible. So just from, like, the layperson, uh, it's one of those things that begins to make sense if, you, you know, you're watching Moneyball and they go get the reliever that – is that submarine pitcher, right? And, you you know, for the longest time you watch that, and I guess you're going, you know, why would that work? The guy doesn't throw very hard. Uh, yeah, nobody's and, calibrated to that. Right, yeah. And then, and then by the time you are calibrated, you don't see him for three months. And, this, you know, this goes by memory as well. I can remember uh, when Jenny Finch uh, threw to make some major leaguers, like Albert Pujols and stuff like that, and just made them look foolish. Uh, they went back and looked at some of the film, and if I'm, my memory serves their eyes were still tracking up. So no no matter, even though the ball was coming down from that position, they were so ingrained to look up for that pitch, to look above that they would look up before they found the ball below. And obviously by that time, it's way too late to catch up anything Jenny Finch is throwing. Uh, but uh, that's me chasing that. That's the rabbit hole for me. That's about as far as I can, I can go down it. Um, well... As we kind of get closer to the end, and you've kind of gone into this, how does this scale out? How does this, you know, the, the idea of bringing high-level baseball concepts and making it uh, available for Little League, the high school coaches, travel cl club teams, and stuff like that, um, how? Uh, how can they take this 150 millisecond and all this stuff that's, that's it's really technical and take it to improve their players, take it to improve their daughter, take it to improve their team. Uh, how? Help us out. Uh, come train at heavy metal baseball. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, how, how you Item can scale one. this out. Item yeah, one. <laughs> I don't want. Uh, how you can scale this out. So if you're a youth, again, I, I do these things with my six-year-old son. Um, get different types of balls. Get tennis balls, wiffle balls, blitz balls, baseball, and throw from different angles. The video of him hitting water balloons. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, throw from different distances, throw from different speeds, throw from different arm angles. Allow them to learn to adapt to all those different things. Um, with high school and college, I mean, the easiest thing with that is eye patch, weighted bats, uh, and high velo. Like, hit off the pitching machine and put the pitching machine at different angles, put it at different dif distances. I, I, I promise you, your kids are going to hate you when you first do that. It's hard. If you've never tried it, you should try it. It is, it is, it just feels weird. 
the first time. It is just so awkward to swing with this one This kind of goes to a Robert Riggins truism is weak BP makes weak hitters. That is very true. So in in, in this beyond 75, what you're saying is in, in the different ways that every the, – the, the BP – any BP or the majority of BP needs to be an absolute challenge. Yeah. To build as big a database as your player can build – well, you don't need to go too far. Like, I mean, I don't need to strap an eye patch on my six-year-old kid. Uh-huh. It, it, the challenge doesn't need to be so high that they can't perform. And I don't know what it is. I've yet to find it in motor learning, but as far as an education, because you know, as a teacher, I have a teaching background. Seventy percent success rate, you know, with a thirty percent failure rate, is is like what the best ratio is to optimize learning. So I try to keep that when we go and do these drills and things is, is try to keep it around 60 70 percent so they know what they know what success feels like but it's not so easy that they don't know what failure feels like right so and, and that's i think in, in your opinion also has been some of the pitfalls of how we've done bp in the past yeah his bp has been nothing but success after success after yeah a guy success. goes in he has a round of 10 he hits 10 balls off the wall i mean yeah he feels great but that's never going to happen in a game yeah so we've got you've got to place constraints on the player Right, and on the group of players during BP, but that magical thing, and this is probably worth a whole other discussion about player development, uh, the idea of how often should a player fail and what should the failure rate be, but it's a constraint the drill where 30% of the time, your player, the player, is failing at the task you're giving them to do. Yeah, I think that's kind of like a unexamined area right now. I mean, you, you, when we talk about scaling into youth in high school and even college, like with pro ball, uh, the first thing I'd invest in eye patches for everybody, and then the right eye system so you could track it. Uh, I would use the blast sensors. Uh, most places have a hit tracks or they have track man. Like you have ways to track all these things, mm-hmm. and you can track eye performance uh, through this as well. So it's it's easy to scale out, and it's not it's really not that expensive. Like if all you wanted to do is buy eye patches yeah i mean you could do it with just eye patches just six dollars for an eye patch and you're saying pretty simple just for really young kids uh yeah different different angles yeah don't put an eye patch on your six-year-old kid and have him hit your six-year-old kid would think it was awesome he probably would would, if you put a six it's not necessary the ball's not traveling enough at that age in my opinion that they need to hit with an eye patch so until we reach that magical 75 mile an hour threshold i would say yeah until Probably eighth grade freshman year, then you can start putting eye patches on them and, and trying to optimize their eye performance a little bit more. But from that, it's it's almost something as simple as taking just batting practice from different angles on the field. Yeah, you know, not necessarily ones that are even true to what they may see in a game. I I know one of the the, the times you've come out and helped us that you were almost forty degrees off to one side. Uh, of, of our guys yeah it forces them to have to couple new movements like you want them to be dynamic hitters that could solve any hitting problem like i want a kid even if he chases a ball in the dirt we're gonna barrel that thing up I'm, i mean the, even though like the eye patch thing I, I if you're still skeptical we've seen it we had a kid who's legally blind and that was another one i posted on twitter the kid's legally blind in one eye we covered his good eye, and he's legally blind, and he's still barreling up a high velo ball out of the machine. And he's even saying, I can see it loaded in the machine, and then I don't see anything. And even he was like, how am I hitting the ball right now? Right. He just, because he was taken off of memory 
Well, I think a lot of it has to do with his visual perception is such that he can't see it. But subconsciously, we, I think we process more than what's actually available to us. And that's another study I put in my paper was they had these people in a dark room and they had a light flashing in front of them and they had them just doing saccadic eye movements, just bouncing their eyes back and forth. And they told them to strike the light with a hammer. But their eyes are moving so fast, they're saying, well, there's no light flashing, we can't see anything. And they had after they convinced them for 10, 15 minutes, there's a light flashing, you just need to strike it. Well, they finally stru like struck it and they realized that they were accurate more times than they weren't. And so subconsciously, there has to be some visual processing that's going on that we're not aware of. So I've seen it several times where kids that have had, that are illegally blind, they have uh, like a lazy eye that can't focus, they are still able to barrel the ball up even with the good eye covered, even off of high really low with weighted, yeah. yeah, like it's it just blows my it blows their mind because they're the ones doing it, yeah, and it blows my mind because it just doesn't seem like it should be possible. Well, that's like a that's like a whole another hour and a half probably of trying to figure out what's going on there, but yeah, I'm not smart enough to figure out that. <laughs> well, well, so what you know, wrap, wrapping all this up, getting towards the end of what we got here. Um, anything that you think in closing, anything that you've got, again, this is, uh, you know, we, we got our listeners out there. We appreciate the people that have signed up and listened to us greatly. All 73 uh, of you. All 73, <laughs> even international. International. We're very popular in Ireland for some reason. Yeah. We, uh, we, uh, at 73, I, I'm safe to say we are officially a phenomenon, <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, one of the, uh, piece of advice I got is I needed to talk less so I think I did a pretty good job of it this time but wrapping this up um, put a bow on this thing for us uh, so we can uh, go home and get a good night's rest so with all this monocular training with the neuroscience stuff like you don't hit what you see you hit what you remember and so you want to make sure that your visual input is as accurate as possible and so my suggestion for making it as accurate as possible if you can you know, get the right eye system. Uh, if you can't, use monocular training. Uh, it's going to improve your kinetic visual acuity, so you'll pick up the, the baseball sooner. You're going to improve your visual motor performance, so you're going to have more accurate swings. It'll improve your gaze optimization. Your eye movements are going to be more efficient with tracking the ball. You're not going to have these wasted movements or your eyes bouncing around. And it'll mitigate perceptual illusions. Like, your visual perception will just be more accurate. And so since it's more accurate, again, you're going to blend that into more accurate movements. And you're going to be right more often than you're not. And that's what we're here to be, right more often than we're on. So, Suck uh, less every day. Absolutely. And, and I mean, of course, and the, the best thing anybody can do is obviously, even if you're in Ireland, make a trek to heavy metal baseball. And me and Robert, we'll just do all this stuff for you. And maybe even get your own personalized heavy metal eye patch, because that's the next thing obviously has got to be coming down the... Uh, the marketing line. So if we're all good here, thanks for listening. I uh, hope you enjoyed it and we'll see you next time. Thank you.